0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, as we uh, turn our our hearts and minds to the Word of God this morning, I invite you to turn with me as we uh, did on Sunday evening or excuse me Friday evening to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight is going to be our text again this morning. I just want to read this section to us verses one to seventeen as we continue to reflect on our adoption in Christ, this theme of the uh, believer's adoption. Romans chapter eight and verse one. "'Do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit.'" Excuse me. "'For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God.'" So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father." The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, on Friday evening for our communion service, Good Friday service, we took some time to gaze intently at the Purchased Privilege of the Believer's Adoption in Christ. That's, that was the theme that we are, uh, began to unpack. And the spiritual privileges that you and I as believers enjoy, um, the scripture says, in Christ, are vast and beyond searching out. They're, they're beyond numbering. And I think sometimes a lot of what passes for preaching today sells those privileges short. Um, preachers and preachers, preaching today often falls into one of two errors— One, they make the privileges of the Christian life simply about things in the present, our immediate sphere of influence. The other error is that many preachers make the privileges of the Christian life as all future. It's just all down the road, some undisclosed time. But neither one of those perspectives is accurate. Neither one of those perspectives is biblical uh, and balanced about what it means to be in Christ. The privileges of life in Christ are very much in the present. They're very much active now. Um, j- you know, joy, cl- a clear conscience, divine insight for wise living. Like, those are all present privileges that we enjoy. But there are privileges in the Christian life that are awaiting us in the future. Fellowship with the saints, glorified bodies, um, uh, a reversal of sin's curse. Right? Bounce preaching, biblical preaching is going to bring both to the foreground. Biblical preaching is going to emphasize both. It makes clear that faith in Christ has privileges that touch in the present and are real and tangible now. And it's also going to emphasize that our present lives in Christ are moving towards something greater, something more is awaiting us. And, And the gracious privilege of our adoption in God's household, that is one of those glorious doctrines that balances our gaze in the present as well as draws our gaze into the future. The triune God from eternity past, Ephesians 1 says, has according to the kind intention of his will predestined sinners to adoption as sons. God in Christ then intends for us as his creatures to know him. He wants us to delight in him, to enjoy fellowship with him, in the truest sense, in the present, and also into eternity future, because that, we said on Friday, is the marrow of eternal life. That's the heart and soul of eternal life. John 17, verse 3, Jesus says, This is life eternal, that they may know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God in a true and saving way is not a bare kind of intellectual knowledge. It's not Bible facts. It involves an active, a vibrant fellowship, a mutual giving and receiving with him, spiritually speaking. And, and, and to enjoy all that fellowship and all those gracious privileges, now and in eternity, all of that flows downstream from our adoption in Christ. 1 John 3, verse 2, the Apostle John says, Beloved, now we are children of God Now, that's the language of adoption. We are are adopted into the family of God. The same, as we read just a moment ago, the same Holy Spirit that powerfully raised Christ from the grave that we celebrate on this resurrection Sunday morning, that same Spirit dwells in the heart of every Christian by faith, enabling them to relate to God as our Heavenly Father with, with filial tenderness, trust, and love. Now, just by way of review, there, anytime a person's adopted in this life, there's basically five essential things that have to be true. First, there must be a family that a person rightfully has a claim upon by birth. We're all born into some earthly family. We understand that. Even orphans have a family, they just don't know who that family is. We all have a, an earthly family by right by birth. Second, there must be another family that a person doesn't have a claim upon, that, that, that they'll be engrafted into. In adoption, there must be a, a completely different family that, that that person doesn't have any claim upon, any right or access to whatsoever. Third, there must be an authoritative legal transfer of that person from their natural birth family to the adoptive family that they're added into. And we said on Friday, you can't do this for yourself. You don't get to just choose, I'm going to be part of this family now. No, it has to be done for you. You need some authority, a magistrate, a judge, some sovereign with legal power to authorize a person's move from one family to the next. Fourth, for an adoption to be complete, the adopted person is set free from their obligations to their original family. And lastly, fifthly, The adopted person is then invested with all the rights, privileges, advantages, along with a clear title to the inheritance of their new family, just as if they had been in that family from birth. So all of those components, all five of those components, must be true for an adoption to be complete. There's a family that you're born into. There's a family that you have no claim upon. There is some authoritative transfer from your birth family to your adoptive family. You are then freed from every obligation to your first family, and then you are invested with new rights, privileges, and blessings in an adoptive family. And as we said on Friday, all essential elements that are required for a person's adoption here on earth, those same elements are also found to be true of our adoption as believers into God's household. Paul Borrowing the Roman practice of adoption that was common and known in the first century, he adapts that as a fitting analogy to describe how we as believers are born children of wrath and come to be called children of God. And we tried to unpack the, uh, the first three uh, elements of that on Friday We said that there must be, spiritually speaking, a family that a person rightfully has a claim upon by birth. And that is the case. For you and for me, every human being that's ever lived is part of a family. That family is the family of sin and Satan. We are ushered into this family by our very first parents, Adam and Eve, And their sin, with all its physical and spiritual consequences, along with the sin nature, that's been passed on to us from generation to generation, from soul to soul, person to person, even now. We we come into this world, Ephesians 2 says, verse 1, as sons of disobedience. And he says in verse 3 that we were by very nature children of wrath, children destined for wrath. The family of Satan and the world, that is ours by natural right as human beings. And all that that family is destined to inherit, wrath, death, cursing, damnation, that's our birthright as sons and daughters of our father, the devil, by default. And there's nothing you can do to to change that. There's no way that you can... You can change that by your own exertion, just like you can't free yourself from your earthly family by your own choosing, you cannot free yourself. No child of the devil can free themselves from the corrupt family of sin and Satan. If you go back to our text in Romans 8, uh, Paul makes that clear in verse 7. He says, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. just reinforces the point. Those born into the family of Satan exhibit all the characteristics of that family. They, They attend all the duties and responsibilities of that spiritual family. And they lay claim to the inheritance of that family. Death, wrath, hell, that's what they do. And uh, lest we think it's just evil people out there in the world, even religious people can be sons and daughters of disobedience. Morally, uh, conservative people can be sons and daughters and children of wrath. Jesus, when speaking with the Pharisees, was made that crystal clear. In John 8, they, they, he preached the message of repentance, and they scoffed at him. They rejected him. And, uh, and they said they were children of Abraham, and therefore what they were saying by that is we belong to God. And, and he says, um, he says you, you can't hear my words, and you won't receive my words because you, you're of your father the devil, John 8, verse 44. These were the most religious people you could find. There's a natural family that every person has a rightful claim to by birth, and that is the family of Satan. To understand our adoption in Christ... We also need to understand that there must be another family that a person doesn't have a claim upon, spiritually speaking. And this, we said on Friday, is the family of of heaven, God's household. God is a family and a household that his children have no claim upon in themselves. None. This is the household that Christ is the head and Lord over, being a son by, by right, by nature, eternally begotten of the Father. But when Adam and Eve sinned, God chastened them. He drove them out of the garden and he blocked every path for them to come back. And that, recorded in John, Genesis 3, reminds us that man lost all right, all privilege to approach God as a, on the basis of a family relation. That was over after the fall. The closeness, the peace, the communion that man had with God in the garden, that, that was jettisoned by their rejection of his, his word. And Adam and all who are in Adam are strangers and aliens of God's heavenly household. We have no right or claim to it whatsoever. Third, to understand our adoption in Christ, there must be an authoritative, spiritually speaking, an authoritative legal transfer from one family to another. If any of us is going to be grafted into God's household, there must be a sovereign who has authority and justification to legally transfer a child of Satan and to call them and to bring them in and declare them to be a child of God. And that is where the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross take center stage. And that's what we were looking at on Friday evening. We were all under the sentence of condemnation. That was our right. That was our inheritance as sons and daughters of disobedience. So what did God do? God sent his son in the flesh to fulfill the law on our behalf and to redeem us from the slave market of sin and to bring us out of the family of sin and Satan. Romans 8 verse 3, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that this is the reason the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What we could not do, God did. God did through the sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because Christ fulfilled the law, and because he became sin for us, John 1 verse 12 says, As many as received him, Christ, to them, to those individuals, he gave the right, the authority to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. By believing upon his Son, The sovereign of the universe graciously declares us to be adopted members of his heavenly household, affixing us with his seal, the Holy Spirit. This is all legal language, John 1. This is legal language. By an act of pure mercy and grace, God gives you and I as a child of Satan a new heart that looks to Christ, trusts in Christ, and in an instant, God becomes our heavenly father, Christ is our elder brother, And all the saints become our fellow brothers and sisters in his household. And then we can say victoriously, as as Paul does in Romans 8 and verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free, he says, from the law of sin and death. You're no longer a child of the devil. You're no longer destined for wrath and judgment and hell. Now the believer is a child of God, not by right. You don't deserve it. Not by might. You couldn't earn it, but by a spirit of adoption. Romans 8 verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery, again, leading to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So that was everything we looked at Friday. But there's more. We said last, as we said earlier, there's, there's five essential things that are required for an adoption to take place. And there's two more that we need to look at this morning. First, to understand our adoption in Christ. Fourthly, We need to understand that the adopted person is set free from all their obligations to their original family. The adopted person is set free from all their obligations to their original family. When someone is is adopted, they're given a new name. They're given a new name. They, They cast aside the name of their old family, and they take to themselves the name of that new family that they are grafted into, and that's exactly what the scripture says God does for us who looks to him everyone who looks to him in faith he receives a new name 1 John 3 and verse 1 see how great a love the father has bestowed on us that's the language of adoption that we would be called God's children and such we are to be called by a new name to be called a child of God when we were previously a child of the devil signifies a change of ownership, a change of character. And if you're in Christ this morning, you have a new name, the name of the Lord Jesus, and it has been embossed upon your heart, making it clear that you belong to God's household and you're a member of God's family. And that new name comes with freedom. It comes with liberty from your old family. The family of Satan. To put it simply, simply, all spiritual freedom flows downstream from the spirit of adoption. All spiritual freedom flows downstream from a spirit of adoption. So, what exactly are we set free from? Well, there's a lot of things, but I'll give you three. First, we are given freedom from slavery to our flesh, slavery to the flesh. Look what Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 10. He says, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead, meaning you're still under the curse, physically, because of sin, yet, he says, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Right? Whose righteousness? Not your righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. That has been imparted to you, credited to your account by faith to make you an adopted child of God. He says, So then, brethren, that being the case, having been transferred from Satan's household to God's household, verse 12, we are under obligation no longer to live according to the flesh. This is freedom. This is freedom from the flesh. You, being a child of God, have been set free from slavery to sin. Paul says it like this back in chapter 6. If you look back with me at Romans chapter 6 for just a moment, in verse 6, he says, Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died, having come to Christ, he says, is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So here's the implication, verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. The point Paul is making is profound and it is simple. If you're in Christ, you are no longer a child of Satan and you have no obligation to live like it whatsoever. Right? The, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Every Resurrection Sunday, every year, every year, we come together and we are amazed that Christ was dead, that he was buried, and on the third day, God raised him up from the dead. We herald that. The scriptures testify over the course of 40 days, Jesus revealed himself to Peter, to the disciples, to more than 500 people at one time. Uh, all the women that we just read about, they all saw him in the flesh in the, after his resurrection, and we stand back and we rightfully marvel at that as Peter did. We think, wow. But here's what we fail to understand. The same powerful spirit, that, the spirit of life that raised Christ from the dead, that same spirit of life has taken up residence within the believer, within you. Right? If you go back to Romans 6 and verse uh, 12, he says, therefore, This is the implication. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under the law, but under grace." Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You're a child of God. You owe the flesh nothing as a believer. And so we do not need to obey its lusts. Secondly, There's freedom from the futility of trying to keep God's law to earn his forgiveness. Uh, How are we set free through the spirit of adoption? We're freed from the futility of keeping God's law to earn his forgiveness. Paul's letter to the Galatians is probably the the text to go to on this. And he makes clear that God's law had an interesting purpose It wasn't just to reveal God's character and his requirements, but God's law was given to expose that you and I could never, by our own good works, pick ourselves up and get to God. That's one of the purposes of the law. God's law set the bar of his holiness so absurdly high that the only reasonable conclusion that we would come to is, someone's going to have to do this for me. Galatians 3 verse 22, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith might be given to those who believe. Therefore, verse 24, the law has become our tutor, our guide to lead us to Christ so that we would be declared righteous, justified by works. No, by faith. But despite the fact that God gave his law to drive the children of Satan in the direction, to hurt us in the direction of faith, humanity has been trying desperately, futilely, to work his way to God a thousand different directions. Every human religion on the planet, save biblical Christianity, boils down to the same variation of, of human achievement. Do this and live. Do these things and God will accept you. It's hopeless, but it's utterly hopeless because the more we try to work our way to God, the more we see how far short we fall and the more we stand condemned. But the spirit of adoption sets us free from all of that. It sets us free from all of that. Romans 8, verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and Death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that that requirement of the law, that absurdly high requirement of the law that we can never attain to, might be fulfilled in us. Those who humbly receive Christ as their righteousness, They have the requirement of the law fulfilled on their behalf. The spirit of life in Christ sets us free. Instead of trudging up this futile path marked, do this and live, by the spirit of adoption, we traverse the life-giving path marked, live and do this. The true Christian no longer serves God as a slave, but as a son and a daughter, a member of his household, beloved, secure, and empowered by his spirit to do his will. That is totally different. Growing up, I used to work with my dad in the summertime, weekends, middle school, high school, college, even after college a little bit on the weekends. He had a lawn maintenance company in Florida. It was hard work. I can tell you I never worried about getting hired summer after summer. I never worried about um, getting fired. (laughs) Although I probably should have. I found out later that he thought about it. I never worried about whether I would be generously compensated for my labors. Why? Because I was his son. I was his son. And while working for him was hard work, at bottom, I wanted to please him. I wanted to honor him. I wanted, to, I wanted the service I rendered to him to be one of a son, not some hired hand. If that's true for me in the context of my earthly father, how much more will that be true for us toward our heavenly father, in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow? Thirdly, there's freedom. We are set free. From all obligations to our old family, there's freedom from terror. Freedom from terror. This is kind of dovetailing off of that point we've just made. But if you look at verse 15 of Romans 8, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We who are adopted into God's household no longer approach God on the basis of fear and terror at a distance. And to illustrate that, the writer of Hebrews gives us a, a picture, a contrast in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, you, believer, have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and a whirlwind, the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command that if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, "I am full of fear and trembling." That's the those of you who maybe aren't as familiar with the scriptures. That's describing the scene on Mount Sinai when God's presence was at the top of the mountain. The people of Israel they, they, they were fearful of God in His blazing holiness. He says. The writer of Hebrews is saying, God's children don't approach him like the Israelites did on Mount Sinai, terrified by what they saw and heard. He goes on to say, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. That's the the blood of Christ that sprinkles us clean. Instead of God's children moving toward, like Moses and the Israelites in fear, God's children move toward Mount Zion where we dwell securely in God's presence with Jesus and the angels and the righteous saints who have been perfected by the blood of Christ. There's no dread in that. There's no terror in that. No trembling We're a member of his household. In God's household, there is mercy, there is peace, there is compassion, there is confidence to approach the throne of grace with boldness. I mean, we've been set free from that. There's no more fear. We are set free from all the obligations we have to our old family. Fifthly, Our adoption, to understand our adoption, for an adoption to be complete, spiritually speaking, the person is invested with all the rights, privileges, and advantages, along with a clear title to the inheritance of their new family. Again, going back to our text in Romans 8 and verse 15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. See, the spirit of adoption doesn't just objectively, kind of in a legal sense, in a sterile sense, transfer us from the family of the devil to the family of God. He doesn't just do that. He also subjectively... In our experience testifies in our hearts that we are, in fact, members of God's household so that we know it and live experientially in light of it every day. I remember several years ago watching a, a video, a short video posted by a family on social media, and it got reposted. And in this video is this little, little guy, maybe 10, 11 years old, who was being fostered by a family and uh, he'd been bounced around all over the place, in and out of orphanages, in and out of foster homes. Uh, natural parents were nowhere to be found. And in this video, his foster parents had wrapped up a gift and given it to him for Christmas. It's kind of the last thing everyone opened. And so they gave it to this little guy and they said, Hey, we got one more thing for you. And he opens it up and, and it's a framed photo of the family like the mom, the dad, and the siblings. And the kid is, um, he's not really sure what to do with it. He's kind of like, okay, thank you. And the dad says, uh, read the note. And there's a note inside the box. And the note said this, Carter, this is our most recent family pick. All of us would love for you to be in the next picture and be a part of our family. And then it said this, Carter, would you like to be, whatever their family name was, and be our son and our brother? And of course, the moment he read that last sentence out loud, he realized what was, going, what was going on. He said he was going to be part of that family forever. Not just for the foreseeable future, but forever. And in an instant, this precious kid's heart flips from one of confusion and, and, and uh and kind of uh, awkwardness to tears of joy because he realizes his nomadic life of foster care and orphanages and more foster care, that was all over. He was now a part of their family with all the rights and privileges and advantages, and he was now a joint heir with all those brothers and sisters he saw in the photo as if he'd been a part of that family from birth. And, beloved, that is how it is for the one who comes to faith in Christ. They are no longer a stranger and an alien, wandering around as some orphan child of the devil. I have a pastor, friend, and mentor who loved to say of Christ, all that is his is mine. Glory, that's mine. A resurrection body fit for eternity, that's mine. A kingdom in which righteousness dwells, well, that's mine too. Perfect righteousness, that'll be mine. Fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that's mine. Gracious eternal rewards and blessings far beyond anything we could earn in a thousand lifetimes, that's mine. Communion with the saints and perfect fellowship forever and ever, yeah, that's mine too. The one who is the creator and owner of everything, whose riches are without limit, who's so wildly generous that he eagerly gives to his children what he requires of them. Faith, trust, love, a new heart. That same one is our heavenly father. He is the one who has qualified us Colossians 1 verse 12 says, made us adequate is what that means, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's the one who has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Why does God adopt wretched sinners as sons and daughters and invest us with all the rights, privileges, advantages, and future inheritance of his son? Why does he do that? Ephesians 1, verse 6 says, simply to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's it. Just because he wants to, because he has always given life and love to his son in the spirit, and he wants to do that for a myriad of sons and daughters. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't think God could ever Adopt you into your family, into his family. Maybe you've turned your back on him so many times in the past, you've lost count. Uh, Maybe you think God is just absolutely too holy to ever let someone like me into his family. Well, I have good news for you this morning. Jesus said in John 6, verse 37, All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And in the original language, the the way that is organized, it it literally means that absolutely certain he will not cast you out. John Bunyan, famous uh, uh, Baptist preacher, took those words by our Lord, and he said they cut the throat of all objections and help the faith that is mixed with unbelief. He went on to say, but I am a great sinner, you say. I will certainly not cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, you say. I will certainly not cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, you say. I will certainly not cast out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, you say. I will certainly not cast out, says Christ. But I've served Satan all my days, you say. I will certainly not cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light. You say, I I will certainly not cast out, says Christ. I have sinned against mercy. You say, I will certainly not cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me. You say, I will certainly not cast out, says Christ. Come to Christ. Come to him. Test him. He... We were, while we were on our sabbatical, we had a chance to hear a sermon in Malachi. and it talks about testing the Lord in the sense, test him and see if he's good. T- come to him, the sinless son of God this morning. Receive him on this resurrection Sunday and be welcomed into God's household. Knowing, confident that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, that same spirit will also give life to your mortal bodies. Let's pray. Father, may there not be a single person here this morning who has not considered the free offer of your forgiveness in Christ. And may you draw hearts to you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to remember what you have done for us, making us beloved sons and daughters in your household, not by right and not by our own might and effort, but by the spirit of adoption. Lord, may we treasure that glorious truth in our hearts. May it inform and structure our lives as believers that we would not live according to the flesh because if you live according to the flesh, we must die. But by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body so that we might live. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, Visit us at CascadesBibleChurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.